This is hell. Near-term climate change cause societal collapse is inevitable and unavoidable. Now that may sound hopeless, but maybe in that hopelessness we can find a way to adapt to our newly globally warmed world. Here to help us understand how bad it is and what we actually can do, sustainability scholar Jem Bendel posted the paper Deep Adaptation, a Map for Navigating Climate Tragedy, which you can find at lifeworth.com slash deepadaptation.pdf. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jem. Thank you, Chuck. It's good to be Good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, at your blog, jembendel.com, it states a, a research paper concluding that climate-induced collapse is now inevitable was recently rejected by anonymous reviewers of an academic journal. It has been released directly by the professor who wrote it, that's you, to promote discussion of the necessary deep adaptation to climate chaos. You are then quoted saying, I am releasing this paper immediately, directly, because I can't wait any longer in exploring how to learn the implications of the social collapse we face. Why was your paper rejected? What did it argue that you believed caused it to be rejected? I mean, the the two reviewers provided quite detailed feedback, but and some of it was really quite useful. But the the main argument was that uh, uh, you you can't conclude <laughs> you can't conclude that uh, societal collapse is inevitable, and they made different arguments for why I can't conclude that. Um, but the main one, one was what they both shared is that that uh, doesn't, doesn't help. It doesn't, it doesn't lead us anywhere. Uh, and this was in a sustainability business journal, one that I actually used to be a, a regional editor with. And so the whole field is premised on the idea that our economic system is viable, can continue, and just we need to change it somewhat. So I was saying, no, it, it's over for this system. We start. We need to have a different conversation. So when I, even when I submitted it, I thought, yeah, this this isn't going to get through. But I, I felt I had to go through the process anyway, rather than just assume that it would be rejected. Does your paper promote denialism or hopelessness when it comes to climate change? Does its findings lead to a lack of response to climate change because? of the way that you argue that it is inevitable? Yeah, this is this is a really important question. Uh, I actually talk about that viewpoint in the paper itself because over, I guess, about the last 10 years, it would be on the sidelines of conferences or meetings where people would express their real worries about what's happening with the climate but it was it was taboo. You couldn't actually talk about that really because you you worried that this might reduce commitment to try to do something about the problem. And so some people have been criticizing my paper, saying, "Well, isn't this isn't this just going to demotivate people?" And what we have seen, what I have seen since late July last year when it came out, is the exact opposite. So what I've realized is that we all have these very subconscious hopes about how the future will be in a way which sort of supports us to continue in normal life. And when we realize that actually the future isn't as we thought, uh, we, we can enter despair, but that can really sort of like burn away those fetters on us and we can look at our lives again and rethink what's really important. So we're seeing this huge uh, international rebellion kick off and many of the people involved at the highest levels 
came to the rebellion after after reading my paper uh, or seeing a presentation I gave in the UK about the paper. So I'm seeing the opposite of that. I'm seeing people um, really, really go for it, realizing there's nothing left to lose. Um, there's no reason for compromising their views anymore. Let's just get out there and talk about how the world is and invite a very different conversation about what do we do now. And we've had uh, conversations with uh, some of the people from that rebellion that have been really fantastic. You write uh, about your paper, I would have had difficulty finding motivation for undertaking a complete rewrite because they had rejected it, given the conclusion of the paper, that the premise of the sustainable business field that the journal is part of is no longer valid. Indeed, the assumptions about progress and stability that lead us to stay in academia in the field of management studies are also now under question. So was your paper dismissed because you dismissed the field of study that is the journal's focus? And if that's the case, I kind of expect that you expected it to be rejected. So why would you even want your paper to be in the kind of journal that you know is going to reject it? I was in a process. I think many people on this topic are in a process. And and I've been in a process for some years since I first started to worry it was too late to stop catastrophic climate change. Um, I first started to worry about that in 2014. I first gave a talk about it at a conference at the end of 2016, but I was still going through that process. And to be honest, when I I did the research over looking at the latest climate science uh, just over a year ago, and I was still grappling with what do I do with this? And I I felt at the time... I mean, I've worked in sustainable business fields uh, since um, 1994. So I I felt it, it just didn't feel right to just walk away from the field altogether without actually um, trying to talk to that field. And to be honest, I didn't believe in the power of ideas in general or my ideas in particular. So I had no idea about what the alternative would be or could be by just putting this paper directly into the world as as an occasional paper for my institute. I mean, we've had now, I think, about 400,000 downloads of the PDF. Uh, So perhaps it's going to now be the most famous climate study ever. And that's just a ridiculous thing. I had no idea of that. I was living in a different world. I just thought, okay, well, I'll write my, I'll, I'll share where I've got to publish it to my profession as a way of saying, goodbye and thank you and maybe we should do something else now and i was actually then going to look at what to do next i wasn't sure is sustainability impossible and therefore pursuing sustainability a distraction from what needs to be done to adapt to climate change well um sustainability in terms of uh, maintaining uh, our current way of life, uh, while also um, maintaining uh, biodiversity and ecosystem integrity and a stable climate, yes, it's it's a complete nonsense. I mean, so it, it, the Sustainable Development Goals, for example, that the UN agreed a few years ago, uh, are uh, really quite redundant now. Um, the second part of your question, though, was that is it therefore a distraction? Um, yes, to a degree in the sense that we're now facing an emergency. And if we don't have conversations about how to help keep us all uh, fed, watered in situ and and peaceful and find ways of having a quality of life without being so resource hungry, 
then we're going to see a more rapid breaking apart of society. And in that context, we're not going to do very much to draw down carbon from the atmosphere or cut our emissions. Uh, so I think a what I call a deep adaptation agenda, really recognizing that societal collapse is either unfolding or on its way, is going to help with doing something about the climate as well. I don't see it as against that. You write the politically permissible scientific consensus is that we need to stay beneath two degrees warming of global ambient temperatures to avoid dangerous and uncontrollable levels of climate change with impacts such as mass starvation, disease, flooding, storm destruction, forced migration and war. The figure that figure was agreed by governments and that were dealing with many domestic and international pressures from vested interests, particularly corporations. It is therefore not a figure that many scientists would advise, given that many ecosystems will be Lost and many risks created if we approach two degrees global ambient warming. Why did governments agree to allow temperatures to increase by two degrees when, as you say, scientists would advise against it? You were mentioning the corporate uh, influence. What does the agreement by governments to allow the two degrees rise in temperature reveal to you about the current state of government reaction to climate change? Yeah, so then... What's been really interesting is my report came out in July last year, and then the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that convened all the world's governments uh, to uh, arrive at that two-degree target and invite governments to make voluntary commitments towards carbon reduction to achieve that target. The IPCC, they issued a new report in the autumn, in, in October, which was about 1.5 degrees, and it was quite clear then that it, it admitted that 1.5 degrees is a disaster. Uh, and it also said, oh dear, uh, we, we have absolutely no chance of reaching it unless we're doing massive cuts year on year, starting now for the next 12 years. And of course, uh, emissions are still going up and that was uh, six months ago. So, um, but your question is why have governments, uh, it's not just the two degree target. I mean, it's just what governments have been agreeing on climate since 1992, which was kind of like the coming out party for uh, climate um, on the world scene. Um, well, it, it's really simple. Go governments are administering an economic system uh, with some core fundamentals around private property, stock markets, and uh, debt issued, uh, money that is issued as debt by private banks, which therefore requires economic growth in order for the system to keep working and therefore for money to be available in the economy and for us to have jobs. So we have a system that requires the, the, a growing impact on the planet, a conversion of resources into products and wastes. So the IPCC, I mean, it was never going to work. I mean, the fact you've got environmental ministers from government showing up at this thing tells you that it would never work because the problem was a fundamentally a one of economics and finance and the monetary system. So, um, in a sense, whatever they agreed, uh, the IPCC would always be irrelevant. And the, it's not me that says it, just, just the um, parts per million record of global carbon concentration shows that it's been completely irrelevant. I mean, last year was the biggest, uh, biggest leap in carbon emissions in a year ever. So, here in the States, the Democratic Party, uh, nationally, they want they often use as part of their environmental platform, as part of their climate change platform. We will agree to the Paris Climate Change Agreement, unlike the Trump administration is doing right now. Would that make any difference? 
Yes. Uh, well, I'm not saying that having some targets, even if they're just not um, not good enough, uh, are not better than nothing. Uh, not better than not having them. Um, we don't we don't know quite how bad it's going to get. So my argument in my paper is that there are now signs that these self-reinforcing feedbacks where the planet is heating itself, uh, there, are, there are enough signs that that's already happening now, which, which means something called runaway climate change, which means it, the, the climate is no longer under human control. Although we've, we've changed it, we, we can't stop it from changing further. However, we can reduce our contribution to the pace of that. So we can, there is definitely, we should be trying to, to cut carbon. But in order to cut carbon in a proper way, bold way, uh, rather than just have these vague commitments, which actually in Britain, for example, the government says, oh, that we've, we've reduced our carbon emissions. But what's really happened is we just basically have China producing all our goods and, and making all our emissions. So we just exported our emissions. So this has to to do this properly, we have to redesign the economy at, at its core, which is then the need for growth, uh, which is, arises from the nature of our banking system. So, yeah, sure, join join the Paris Accord, but it's not going to it's not going far enough uh, unless you have a proper discussion around a kind of new economic system, which is uh, not going to drive uh, uh, the consumption of the natural world and pollution of our environment. Uh, and unless you start preparing for the disruptions that are now happening, I mean, just look at the floods and the fires and the droughts that are now happening already and are already impacting on our global food supply. Unless you start preparing for that now as well, um, then when society falls apart, then no one's going to give a monkeys about any international agreement about anything. You mentioned food supply. How fragile, how precarious is our food supply in the face of climate change? Are we facing societal collapse because we are facing climate-induced failure of, architect, of agriculture and that we'll have to completely change the way we supply food? Yeah, so human society is, is super complex and, and how everything relates is 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 perhaps beyond our comprehension. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm careful when I talk about it. But the key thing, when I looked at all the vulnerabilities of human society to, to climate change, the key thing really, I think, is is food. Uh, I mean, it's an old adage that a, a hungry society is an ungovernable one, and or that you know we're only a, a certain number of meals away from, from chaos. Um, and we've seen that with 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 what's happened with the Arab Spring. The key the key factor there was was a sudden spike in in food prices as well as well as other factors. So, so yeah, food uh, is our food system is the way that uh, climate chaos can trigger societal collapse. And so, the the problem is we are a grain based civilization. About 80% of the grains that, sorry, 80% of the calories that humans eat come from from the the, the main grains, and they are rain-fed uh, almost entirely. Uh, we don't, we do have some irrigation, but it's mostly grain-fed, and therefore right, rain-fed. Sorry, and therefore when you have strange weather, then you end up having a really bad impact on those grains. And so, for example, 2018 Northern Hemisphere summer. Uh, we, we had a massive drought across across Europe. 
The UK experienced a 20% production drop, but that wasn't unusual. In um, many European countries, similar drop in, in grain outputs. And also other, 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 other foods. I mean, uh, Germany had a 50% decline in their potato output as well last summer. So we can see quite easily how our agricultural system at the moment is very, very um, fragile uh, to the kind of weather disruption we're seeing. So the other part of your question, yeah, absolutely, there are things we can do about that. Uh, but from what I can see at the moment, they're not being done. Uh, and that would include uh, looking at, at all kinds of new ways of making sure we can produce our food without relying on regular rain, regular rain. Uh, yeah. So, what? How do you feel about these people who are uh, what they what they call uh, preppers, doomsday preppers? Can't we all just go back to being subsistence farmers and ensure our own access to food? I completely understand that when when you hear this kind of analysis that uh, myself and and many other people now are sharing. Um, I completely understand people then naturally uh, a sense of fear, a sense of panic, and thinking, how do I protect myself and those I love? And therefore thinking, well, do I have some stored food, tin food? Uh, where does my water supply come from? Um, how how cohesive is my community? Um, will we just kill each other? And that kind of mentality, that, that that's, I completely understand that. But then... If you begin to look at what does it really mean to try and go off-grid and be self-reliant in, in, in food and medicine and water, and then you end up thinking, well, okay, so I also need to be self-reliant in weaponry if I'm going to look at the fact that not everyone else will be going self-reliant too. So there'll be many thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who will be hungry and angry and desperate. And so I looked at this and I thought, I think, I think it's actually a form of delusion, so, and therefore a form of denial to think that we can run for the hills and uh, feed ourselves in small communities and fend off the enemy. I think, I think we're all going down together unless we find ways of sustaining each other, as I said earlier to be fed, watered, and stay in situ. Um, that, to, for me, when I went through this grieving, this process of panic, fear, grief, and so on, I thought about, shall I just go and hide and, and learn some basic skills and grow food and so on? And then I thought, that's, it's not going to work. So I then thought I should help raise the alarm and, uh, and help the Extinction Rebellion campaign. So I started helping them in October to prepare and, and to think through what they were doing and, and, and to support them a bit. So I then I spoke at the, the launch of the Italian International Rebellion in London on Monday as well, um, because I think we need, a polit we need political action on this. Right, political action. So in your opinion, then, can we not all individually take individual actions, for instance, being all becoming green consumers individually, is that not the way to address climate change, that the only way that it can be addressed or that we can adapt to it in any way is through a collective response? So, yeah, we need, we need um, when I say collective response and 
I'm talking. I, I'm, I talked about political action. I think that the problem with the environmental movement and environmental profession is that it it grew to prominence at a time when neoliberalism was growing to prominence, and therefore we thought about what do we do as individuals. Um, and so, for example, when the trade union movement um, was was developing over a hundred years ago, uh, people wouldn't turn around to somebody who wanted to fight for collective bargaining and freedom of association and for a decent weekend uh, or a proper paid holiday. They didn't turn around to them and say, "Is your T-shirt from a uh, a factory that's a cooperative or owned by uh, a trade, you know, a, a company with a trade union?" Uh, I mean, there, there may have been some of those conversations, but it probably it's not like today where so many people say, oh, really, you're environmentally friendly, so is that a, is that a natural dyed organic T-shirt? I, it, it was always going to be uh, needing a political, a political transformation, a political movement to deliver an economic transformation, and the Extinction Rebellion is, is helping make that known now. So, yes, personal responsibility, but that doesn't mean just in terms of taking shorter showers and and buying uh, and, and recycling more. It means coming together both at local and national government levels to try and get systemic change, uh, integrated public transport, you know, all things that can help with with uh, carbon emission reduction and drawdown, but also preparing, including how are we going to make sure that whatever happens with the weather, we can keep everyone fed. And that will actually probably therefore involve plans for food rationing, and that would also mean putting a lot of companies out of business. So the meat industry uh, could be in a really bad way uh, in the next few years. Um, and and government will, will unfortunately have to uh, approach that issue and, and help the people that will be losing their jobs in the meat industry. What does societal collapse mean to you? Does it mean the end of capitalism? Does it mean the end of globalization, global trade, do you have a sense of what a society that has experienced, our society, after experienced climate-induced collapse, do you have an idea of what that would look like? Yeah, I'm, I, uh, since my paper came out, I discovered that there's a whole field of, of uh, thinkers and writers about collapse and who've analyzed collapse uh, through of different civilizations over time and also... Uh, even in and, and and there's a contemporary collapse community of thinkers as well um, in France. There's a field called collapsology. So I'm I'm new to this, and I've, I I don't claim to be an expert in in how collapse will unfold. Uh, for example, I, I don't claim to be an expert either in food security. That's a big field, but it's a field that's undergoing major transformation right now. As people in that in that field wake up to how bad the climate is and how quickly it's changing. So I. Yeah, I'm really merely guessing when I talk about how it will unfold. But I would say we have far greater um, sensitivity in our societies than we need to. So I'll give you an example. Um, the the Bank of England's governor and has just come out recently and said uh, climate could, climate is posing a potentially a, a real catastrophic risk risk for, for for the financial system. The World Economic Forum, sort of the, the most elite body of, of 
capitalists uh, said in January that we're sleepwalking into a climate catastrophe. So it's not just radicals who are talking like this. This idea is seeping now into wider society, including into those who manage uh, investment funds and banks and so on. So there could be, well ahead of the actual environmental driver of, of, of collapse, you know, we, we our financial system could seize up because of panic in the financial markets. And that's quite, that's quite ridiculous. The idea that we could still be growing enough food for us all to eat, but we can't pay for it because our means of exchange has disappeared because we've had a financial collapse because of anticipated, the anticipation of what's coming. So I, I, I would argue rather than trying to work out how it's going to unfold, look at those ways that we increase our sensitivity so that we might actually collapse sooner than we have to. So that's why I work in in alternative payment infrastructure, so that we're not going to just rely on one global banking system for our ability to pay each other to, to buy our food. You write about uh, having to leave behind mainstream views. You write how the perspective of inevitable near-term climate-induced societal collapse is marginalized within the professional environmental sector. And so you invite readers of your paper to consider the value of leaving mainstream views behind. What are the kind of mainstream views we must leave behind? I think many of us have, um, I think that when I wrote that paper, I was really um, speaking to my professional field. And there's quite a bit of sociology on how, uh, as professionals, uh, you know, people with degrees, perhaps people who work at universities, uh, we are less likely to question the system that we have, are apparently thriving within compared to, to other people. And uh, there's some really good sociology on that. So through our hard work in getting degrees and getting jobs in, in, in organizations, getting promoted, we kind of we, we kind of scoff at critical or radical thinking. So I was writing to that audience to say, you know, you guys like me have sort of worked really hard in the current system to get to the top. You guys like me have a story of yourselves being um, a positive change agent, doing good in the world. Um, we've got to drop these stories. We've got to actually look at, with fresh eyes at what's happening and realize that uh, all the work that we've done hasn't impacted. The, the career that we're the top of now might now be redundant. Um, and our view of us being a, a good person, doing good in the world, that might be redundant too. So I was I was speaking more to to those sorts of people, and that that's the kind of letting go that I was inviting, and still do. Well, a lot of people say, you know, they've been waiting. We'll just have some new technology come about, and it's going to save us from all the worst aspects of climate change. How much can technology, as it stands right now, even if those uh, haven't been those technologies haven't been scaled up to the size that they would need to be? How much can technology that we have right now save us from the worst aspects of climate change? Um, so there's two aspects to that. Um, actually, three. There's one is um, uh, technology for reducing emissions. Then there's technologies for uh, taking carbon out of the atmosphere. And then there's technologies for uh, uh, preparing for the disruption. So there's three areas. Um, so it's, 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 it's a massive, massive field to talk about. Uh, I think... Um, 
actually the fourth, of course, which is geoengineering. So the, for me, the things which um, I think there's a, a lot of nonsense being said about what's called direct air capture of carbon dioxide and a few videos that went viral on that. I looked at the, t this, is, this is where machines take car carbon out of the atmosphere. The thing is, you need to run these machines on renewable energy only, otherwise there's no point. And uh, I looked at the, the, uh, the, the current performance, and I looked at what we would need for them to make a real difference. We need them to be deployed at 2 million times their current capacity, and we need that right now. Um, even just to make a, uh, just to stop the, just to to bring us down to, um, to not even to make it, just to stop the amount that we're adding in right now, rather than to bring the global carbon levels down. So we would need a two million times capacity of the current deployment just to stop increasing parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So that's not going to happen. Um, we, but but there are technologies. I mean, we're in a we're in a society where we think of technology in terms of electronics and machines, but the, you know, we just need to be um, we need to have agroecological approaches in our farming. We need to be reforesting. Uh, you know, are, the, are these technologies? Well, they're, they're ways of knowing and they're ways of doing, and and uh, so that, that needs to happen. We need to be restoring seagrass and seaweed um, fields of seagrass and seaweed because they are just as actually actually they're better than forests for capturing carbon but um, it, none of that is good enough it's not going to stop catastrophic climate change so I am I think unusual as an environmentalist for arguing for one kind of geoengineering to be tried right now which is called marine cloud brightening. And I think we should do that above the Arctic right now because the Arctic, if, if the Arctic keeps melting the way it does, that basically means like we, that's the refrigerator of the planet and we risk um, a really rapid jump, jump in temperatures globally if, we, if the Arctic uh, becomes ice-free. So that's a simple technology of putting spraying water into the atmosphere above the Arctic. And I think a lot of the other ideas for geoengineering are... Uh, very risky uh, indeed, uh, but I think that one needs to be done now and learned from right now. So those, those and, and then there's a whole other area of technology around adapting, so irrigation systems, but also looking at different ways of producing proteins, um, uh, looking at this, lots of interesting kinds of, I'm, I'm sorry to say, a lot of interesting kinds of worms, micro worms that grow on all kinds of organic waste and then um, can give us our protein. We've got to look at everything. This is the uh, deep adaptation you were talking about, this marine cloud, like you were just talking about, marine cloud watering, this kind of carbon sequestration by growing seagrasses more, uh, that, as you were saying, they're not going to fix the problems of climate change, but they're going to make it so we can adapt to them better. Why are these ideas not being pursued, these technologies not being pursued, not being implemented massively right now, because I'm concerned, Jem, that the reason that they are not being implemented is because corporations, business hasn't figured out how to profit from it yet. Sure. Uh, that, that's, um, that is how it is. Uh, we, we, nearly every, every country on the planet has a form of capitalism and also has a, a banking system where 
government uh, can only raise revenue through tax or selling debt uh, rather than issuing its own currency and spending it into circulation. So uh, we we live on a planet that is uh, run in the interests of private banks. So I, I think we, we just don't even look at corporations. I mean, the, the underneath all that is, is the banking system. And even our governments are trapped within that banking system. And it's because of that that uh, the only things that make sense are, are the things that create uh, as much profit as possible. Uh, that, that's the system we've designed, and it has turned out to be a what you could call an omnicidal system. It is killing life on Earth. And uh, I know that a lot of people, when they talk about climate and raising awareness, uh, for example, the Extinction Rebellion, um, um, want to be somewhat agnostic on the politics of this. It's just, let's get together and see what to do. But from my analysis, it's we, we have to redesign the fundamentals of our economy. Uh, this isn't going to be done by uh, some smart investors in venture capital firms, uh, maybe in partnership with a, some sponsorship from governments. No, we're going to have to completely rework how, how, business, how business operates. An anonymous reviewer at the journal where your paper was rejected commented, the language used in the paper is not appropriate for a scholarly article. Why do you believe what the reviewer, reviewer calls appropriate writing for a scholarly article? Why do you believe that's not necessarily the best way to communicate about climate change? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've, some people have said that since. Uh, some other people criticized the paper uh, since I released it. Um, saying that it it's, uh, has too much sort of personal opinion and uh, flowery language. There's Academia has changed. Um, social sciences used to be uh, suffering from a hangover from the natural sciences where we pretended that we as researchers were robots and we had no opinions or value. Uh, but there's, there's that's been changing for, wow, 30, 40 years, where now we see that every researcher has a viewpoint uh, has a life experience, have a set of values. And so long as you are explicit about your subjectivity uh, and when you're clear about why you're saying what you're saying or your evidence base is, and, and, uh, then, then that's fine. So, I mean, my whole section on denial in that paper was what we call autoethnographic. I was, I was looking at the environmental profession and the environmental movement by looking at myself and how, what was going on inside of me and what was going on when I had conversations with colleagues in that sector. So I was quite clear on that. So that really just reflects that someone isn't up to speed with the diversity of methodology in academia today. Um, uh, and that might have been a bit of the review that annoyed me. <laughs> uh, as, as someone who, who works in, in, uh, yeah, in academia... But so, and it probably annoyed me so much. I can't remember what was your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just move on to that uh, whole process. So, how much is wider society being kept in the dark on climate change uh, by researchers and practitioners who only write for other researchers and practitioners? Is our lack of knowledge sure. uh, about science's fault or fossil fuel companies' fault? Oh wow! Uh, well, both. Um, it's really clear about the fossil fuel companies sponsoring um, uh, sponsoring research to try and cast doubt on on what was basically a scientific consensus in 1987. In 1987, the UN General Assembly adopted the Brundtland Report, which said that climate change 
uh, is happening, we're causing it, and it's a problem. Uh, it's only at that point that the, uh, the fossil fuel industry really swung into action to fund people who have cast doubt. And, of course, they still do. They spend hundreds of millions worldwide on lobbying against um, policies that are desperately needed. So, yeah, not taking any blame away from fossil fuel executives. If you're listening, how dare you threaten life on Earth? Um, uh, if you're going to get up to, and go to work tomorrow, then, then cause havoc. Otherwise, stay at home. But then there's also a problem with scientists. And James Hansen, who's one of the most uh, famous uh, climate scientists who brought this to world attention in uh, presentations to Congress in the 80s, he's, he's published a paper on what he calls scientific reticence. So there's basically a, a culture in, in the scientific community of, of, of always being super cautious about what you, what you claim. Uh, and there's a, but also that's also because there's a there's a value associated in sort of not really having emotions <laughs> and not ha and, and and trying to present your work in a value neutral way um, and what's there's a wonderful report called what lies beneath which actually analyzes the intergovernmental panel on climate change and why it has consistently been always wrong in terms of never never up with the what, what the what actually happens in the climate it's always under under-reporting or under-predicting uh, uh, or under-projecting what, what, what the climate's going to do. And that's because it's trying always to seek consensus. And when there isn't consensus, then it leaves out something. So, for example, in 2007, they couldn't find a consensus on what was happening with the amount of water coming from uh, Antarctica into the oceans. And so they just left out the data altogether. And so, so the, there are, these are the reasons. These, ways of behaving were acceptable because people weren't panicking. <laughs> and what we're seeing, I think, in the last 12 months is that people in these elite institutions, so the UN World Meteorological Organization and the IPCC and other UN agencies, they are also panicking now inside those bureaucracies. And that's why we're beginning to see much more bold statements coming from those top bodies. I understand that science strives for objectivity. Journalism strives for objectivity, but it journalism realizes that you can never be completely objective. Is that the same kind of situation with science, that they are striving to be objective, knowing that they can't be objective? Because I mean, everything is political, so isn't science political as well? Yeah, so... Um... It's difficult to generalize because I'm, I'm a social scientist. And so in the social scientific field over the past decade, yes, we, we argue that anybody who is trying to say that their work is value neutral is actually just allying with current structures of power. Um, and, and you actually need to look at the, the, the politics and economics of your your approach to study, the fact, why have you got the money to do the study in that way? Um, what are your assumptions? What are your values? If, if you're hiding all that, then then it's just not quality research. So within social science, there's, there is that idea. Within natural science, like climate science, then I think it's more difficult. There is definitely this idea that you try and just let the data speak for itself. Now, in climate modeling, that can be a problem because there are so many subjective decisions about 
what relationships between variables to include and to what degree. And so I think there has been a false confidence coming from uh, some climate models, uh, uh, even though they say, well, this is just a projection, this is not a prediction. That's not how it ends up being used by policymakers. It is used as a prediction. And, and I think we're going to see something quite different in the, in the coming months where different assumptions about relationships between variables are going to be used in climate models, which are going to produce extremely scary projections, the kind of which would always have been discounted in the past because you wouldn't have wanted to alarm people unnecessarily or you wouldn't want to get laughed at or rejected by um, peer reviewers. I think we're seeing, as I said earlier, we're seeing a really quite a big shift and the panic is spreading and therefore actually what can be suggested or concluded uh, has changed. So I wouldn't say it's political, but it's, science is a product of our society and therefore is influenced by our society. Are we in denial about climate change because we are in denial about death? Can we not come to terms with climate change as a society because as a society and even individually, we have not come to terms with our own deaths and the possible deaths of our closest loved ones? Yes. Can we over... you see any chance that we will have a better understanding and have better terms with death than we do now? Uh, absolutely, because um, what happens when, when you look at uh, climate change and it's a reminder of the, the natural world and therefore it's a reminder of the real world, which is, is about life and death. Uh, it's things coming and going. Uh, impermanence and change is central to what life is. So it's, it's a, it's, yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you live in the city uh, and your experience of life is continual upgrades of tech and cars and uh, the latest flavor in the coffee, whatever it is, there's this sense of um, somehow sort of things moving forward. Um, and that is a deep disconnection from what reality is, which is cycles of life and death. Uh, and also, therefore, obvious from that is we're not in control. You know, we, 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 we pretend we are, but we are part of nature. Nature is part of us and we're not in control of it and we, we can't live forever. So I think climate change is definitely an invitation for all of us to recognize the reality that we are that, that we're in, and therefore ask existential questions of ourselves and each other. So, what is the meaning of life? Uh, what is the meaning of our death? How do we wish to live, and also how do we wish to die? Um, yeah, it, there's no getting away from it. So, it is going to be a philosophical or humanist or humanist or spiritual invitation. Can we do the deep adaptation that you suggest without reproducing the same effects that we created? by industrializing society. How uh, can can we have a, like here in the United States, this idea of a Green New Deal, whatever you think of the Green New Deal or not, can we do that kind of thing, or if it, whether it's that or deep adaptation, without new technologies whose production contributes to climate change, despite, in the long run, having a far smaller carbon footprint? 
Yeah, so with deep adaptation, the reason why I called it deep is to contrast it with the mainstream climate adaptation field, which is very much about how do we preserve this way of life, this economic system, by more irrigation, higher seawalls, um, better zoning for land use, that kind of thing. Um, deep adaptation is premised on the idea that it won't work and society will collapse. So um, when I talk about doing things like marine cloud brightening or irrigation systems, I'm talking about buying time uh, and increasing our chances that we can collapse softly, that we won't um, we won't make matters worse by going hungry and killing each other. So I'm I'm not saying in I'm not saying this gets us out of I'm not, at all. I mean I, I talk about four R's: uh, resilience, which is kind of what I talked about mostly with with you, Chuck, but also. Um, relinquishment is the second R, and that's about what is it that we need to let go of, otherwise we'll make matters worse. And so that can be all kinds of things that now we take for granted for our, our pleasure and our way of life. Um, then the third R is, is, is restoration. So what, what is it that we've lost in our advance in, in consumer, industrial, consumer society? What is it that we've lost that we could bring back? To, so, for example, so many of us now just... we. Our whole way of life depends on devices and screens and electricity. And there were ways of having fun for thousands of years. Humans did exist before this way of life. Um, so how can we look at, at, at look back to that? Um, and then reconnecting to nature is going to be part of that too. The third R is, sorry, the fourth R I, I call is um, reconciliation. So it's basically who and what do we need to make peace with? Uh, in this context, and the context is that we're probably going to die, each of us younger than we had imagined. Um, I mean, nothing certain, but it looks probable now. Uh, so it brings those questions that we typically leave to the moment of, say, palliative care. It brings those questions right now into the present moment. So, um, you know, are we are we at peace with people we've affected through our life? Um, are we? How do we feel about the fact we're going to die? Um, how can we process that, um, grieve that, and find find a place of calm and joy uh, without ignoring that, and ignoring and without ignoring that that could be coming sooner than we had thought, and also to our loved ones. So yeah, I'm, the, the deep adaptation framework is not it's not a it's not a technotopia, and uh, it's not that lighthearted. It's it's inviting people to do some deep work with each other about why, what, how they want to live through this coming calamity. We have been speaking with sustainability sustainability scholar Jem Bendel. He posted the paper, Deep Adaptation, a Map for Navigating Climate Tra Tragedy, and you can find that paper at lifeworth.com slash deepadaptation.pdf. You can find out more about Jem at jembendel.wordpress.com. You can follow him on Twitter at jembendel. That's J-E-M-B-E-N-D-E-L-L. -L. And we want to thank a listener, Tarver, for suggesting Jem as a guest on this week's show. Tarver, because you mentioned it, we're going to be sending you a free gift. One last question for you, Jem. And as, we, as it is with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And I think that's going to be the part where this will lie. Marine life and seashores are going to be devastated by rising sea levels and climate change. But as I have asked guests in the past, 
hey, we're broadcasting from here in Chicago. Are we safe from climate change here on the shores of Lake Michigan? Aren't we all going to get rich when we sell our places to seashore refugees who have fled to Chicago? And then we can cash in and flee even farther north where we can buy a place someone else has fled to go even farther north. How does devastation of marine life and seashore affect everyone, not only those living on seashores? Yeah, that's an interesting one there. Um, I see you've been having some fun conversations recently around yes. this topic. Yeah, so they're, they're all really happy, you know. This is dark conversation, is it? Exactly. Let's Chicago talk. Exactly, exactly. This is kind of, and that's, you know, Guy McPherson started this with us uh, years ago. So, yeah, it's just all happy times over here, John. <laughs> well, I don't know. The Canadian Environment Ministry came out with a study recently uh, saying that, um, uh, I think Canada's warming at five times the rate as the rest of the planet. I, I didn't pay close attention to it. I'm not don't focus on Canada enough, clearly. But um, uh, yeah, Canada is, is is not the 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 panacea or utopia in this context. In that case, um, uh, how is devastation of marine life going to affect everyone? Oh, well, the big problem is the big problem is, of course, is the, is fish. I mean, a major source of protein. Um, that, that's that's going to become a really a real problem. But uh, do you do you feel in Chicago you'll be better off? Oh, I mean, uh, I said earlier we all we're all going to I think sink or swim together on this. I mean, it, uh, why do you think that uh, private property or the U.S. dollar will mean anything in such a context where you've got millions of people uh, leaving the eastern seaboard uh, to head towards Chicago? I, I, I had, that's, that, that's ludicrous. That, that I think in that context, uh, people won't be paying you rent. They'll just be taking over your houses. So um, we, are, we, we have to help each other or, uh, or it's, it's not going to work out. Jem, I really appreciate you being on our show this week. This has been a fantastic conversation, and everybody should read your paper. Oh, you mentioned uh, one other thing, uh, What Lies Beneath. you know the author of that by chance? Because that sounds like a really great paper I'd like to check out. Um, I, oh, wow, it's two, 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 papers, two authors. Um, I can't remember them. All right. Um, just, just, I, I, what I can do is I'll make sure that in your show notes uh, you, you've got the link. Okay, thank you. I really appreciate it. Take care, Jem. I really appreciate you being on the show and count on us. How are you feeling? (laughs) I'm feeling better. (laughs) Somehow your hopelessness made me a little bit more hopeful. I appreciate it. Oh, wow. It's good to hear that. Um, I don't hear that every day. (laughs) Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.